Back in 2007, I was working on a book about the 90s Dallas Cowboys titled Boys Will Be Boys. Most of the key players spoke with me, but one elusive piece was Michael Irvin, the flamboyant wide receiver. Hence, I traveled to Canton, Ohio that August with a press credential for his Hall of Fame induction ceremony. I got Michael in group interview sessions, watched his speech, but I felt like something was missing. Hence, when the ceremony was over, I, along with my friend Michael J. Lewis, snuck into Michael's Hall of Fame after party in a tent on the grounds. Literally, we slid under the canopy and wound up inside. There was security everywhere, so we kept moving. Left, right, right, left. The Pointer Sisters were performing live. There were bowls of M&Ms everywhere, and it was invaluable. The final scene of my book is actually Michael Irvin dancing with his wife at that party. So was it ethical to sneak into a party like that? Mmm, I don't know. Was it righteous? Hell yes. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Tim O'Brien, author of the all-time classic, The Things They Carried, as well as a new release, Dad's Maybe Book. This is episode number 149. Let's sling some yang. First of all, thank you for doing this. I have a, a daughter who's a junior in high school, and I'd say two months ago, she told me she was reading The Things They Carried, and I had read The Things They Carried. Obviously, it's, it's an enormous, enormous book. And I was wondering before you get into anything, I've written nine books. I've had books on the bestseller list. I've never had a book that even approximates the hugeness of the things they carried as far as sales, impact, etc. And I wonder what it's like to sort of have that. Do you care at all? Does it matter? Is there ego with that? Is there no ego with that? Does it just feel like a book you wrote a long time ago? What is it to have an enormous, enormous book, something I will probably never know the feeling of? Well, I guess the main thing I can say is that it does not make the next book any easier everyone is you feel like a beginning writer when you started and uh to expect otherwise is a false expectation it just doesn't get easier i don't think about it much that the book has done well one's attention as a writer is always on what you're working on at the moment because my first book was my biggest seller and it was 15 years ago and it just kind of feels like something that doesn't even exist to me anymore. Like it feels like something that happened so long ago that it just feels like another person wrote it. I have something similar. I still take pride in the things they carried and Cacciato and some of the other books, but it does feel oftentimes as if someone else had written it. I don't mean another living human being, but another, I mean another me, another Tim O'Brien. You uh, go back to a book and revisit it. And I often think, you know, where did that come from? And how did that clause come to mind? Or even that word choice. And the fact is, I can't remember. It was in the case of uh, the things I carried was, you know, some 25, 28 years ago. I was reading a profile of you from the Philadelphia Inquirer back in 1994. And I suffer a lot of pain from writing and a lot of depression from writing and a lot of anxiety from writing. You were talking about something. You took your, your parents to Las Vegas, and you said that's something I never would have done when I was obsessed with writing well, writing nine hours a day, seven days a week. How does any human be any functioning human being write, <laughs> write nine hours a day, seven days a week? Well, it's not all typing. It's a lot of just having my butt in a chair and 
being present for that amount of time. Uh, I still occasionally do it, not as often as I used to when I was younger. But to me, writing is a lot like dreaming, that when you're in the midst of a dream, you want to stay in the midst of it. And if you wake up and go to the refrigerator and get a glass of orange juice and try to get back into the dream, it just can't be done. You're losing some sense of immediacy and of coherence and why it was interesting to you. It vanishes almost the way yesterday vanishes. And to try to sustain the dream for a while is really why I, I stay parked in front of my computer for, you know, eight or nine hours at a whack. I don't do it often anymore, though. I can't tell if you enjoy writing or hate writing. It's mostly hate. Yeah. Uh, everything you described, frustration and despair, second thoughts, uh, a kind of anger directed at yourself. But occasionally there'll be an endorphin rush for just a phrase strikes you as something fresh to the world and worth giving to the world. And then there's a tickly, giggly feeling that you know, they're going to love it in Sioux City. And it's rare, but it happens often enough. It's like golf. You know, you might have a terrible round, but you sink one 12-foot putt, and it'll bring you back the next day. And writing for me is pretty much like that. A lot of pain, but now and then some very intense pleasure. Do you know as soon as you write something well? Like, do you get that pleasure? Do you have a turn of phrase or a paragraph or something, and you, and that's when the rush comes? Or does a rush come... When someone affirms or reaffirms to you that you what you wrote was good, the rush doesn't come from other people. It comes from inside, somewhere inside my belly or chest, somewhere in there. That it's the feel of hitting a baseball properly, or a golf ball, or sinking a three pointer. Everything the universe all seems cohesive and all is in sync with all else. It's an internal feeling, and it's the making sometimes of a phrase sometimes just of a word choice sometimes of you know a sentence or two do you like most of what you write no most of what i write is is, a, is failure i have one great virtue as a writer which is i'm very stubborn and i will do a sentence over and over knowing there's something wrong and often knowing what's wrong in fact usually knowing what's wrong there's a staleness to it that that i know is not cannot endure it's not my best self so i stick with it i'm like a mule i just keep plodding uphill hoping for you know some intercession from the gods i'm honestly fascinated by this in many ways so if you're writing and you're writing a book and you write a sentence just a sentence that doesn't make you feel good or it doesn't feel right or it doesn't rewrite or it doesn't carry the way you want Will you continue writing and then go back to the sentence, or are you stuck on that sentence and cannot move forward until you fix the sentence to the way you <laughs> That's a great question, and I'm pretty much stuck. <clears throat> I'm anal that way. That I, if I know I have to come back to something, it means that everything I've written since I, the moment I was stuck is probably going to have to be rewritten itself, so there's no, really no point in going on. That doesn't mean that... It means I... Oh, I can. I need some sort of satisfaction with a sentence, or with a couple of sentences that I can endure, and that think it might be okay. Sus- suspe- suspicious that it will not be okay. Not enough to keep me going forward, but most often I'll I'll 
just try another way of saying it. Sometimes the reverse of what I, where I'm stuck is write a sentence that's exactly the opposite. And by doing that, you can discover that maybe what you were trying to do, in fact, was to get to the opposite through an unnecessary sentence. It shouldn't have been there in the first place. I loved her, Jack thought. And a moment later, he think, no, I, no, I, I hate the bitch. And that's what you wanted to get to in the first place. And there are so many ways of saying, I love you, I loved her, and that sort of thing, that they're bound to feel stale. And sometimes skipping over the sentence is really this, is more often than not, in fact, has been the solution for me. It's you just skip the stale thing, delete it, and uh, go to what you really wanted to get to in the first place. That happens, I'd say, a quarter of the time. Wait, so you'll take an hour, two hours working on a sentence, working on it, crafting it, working on it, this word doesn't work, this, and then just delete the damn thing at the end? Yes. <laughs> that's the worst. That's horrible. That's my that's my essential work pattern. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's horrible. The goal, is not to, the goal is not to go on for a page that you have to delete. I used to be a staffer at Sports Illustrated, and there there was a really good writer there, there named Gary Smith. He used to say, you know, every every word needs to count. Like, every word needs to have a purpose. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it, I always repeat it. But is that is that true or is that impossible? I think it's basically true. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's always true that for every rule I've ever heard there are exceptions. But you, you, that's essentially what I'm aiming at. You know, Conrad said something very similar in his preface to *Nigger the Narcissus*. It wasn't in his case every word, but you could go with every word. In fact, you could go with every syllable. That. Syllables matter to a writer because syllables determine cadence and the rhythm of a sentence. And they matter to me. And you can hear these sorts of things when you read your own work aloud to your wife or your girlfriend or your son or whomever. You can hear where rhythm falters. And there's a kind of music underneath the prose that I think every writer hears. I mean, I think we all hear it. And uh, it's our, it's the music of the way we grew up speaking sometimes. It's the music of what, of the standards of excellence that we've acquired through our own reading. What's, what kinds of sentences sound good to, the, to your particular ear, which don't. And there's no right or wrong to any of that, but I do listen to the sound of the prose. One thing I find interesting about that, because I, I, um, I read every sentence out loud, I read every word out loud, I sit... I write mainly in coffee shops and people look at me like I'm insane because I, I was sitting in front of my laptop and I will read uh, the dog ate parts, the dog ate parts. And then he went to town, the dog ate parts. Mm. And then he went to town and I will literally sit there and read it over and over <laughs> and over again. But I don't know another way to do it. And I always tell people you have to read out loud. You have to read every word out loud. Do you feel like that's a, a factual way about this? Or do you feel like that's just, two guys with a with a way of doing it. Well, I have to. I mean, I'm not sure every writer has to. There's, there are two ways, though, of reading aloud. One, one way is the literal way, speaking it. And another way is sort of an internal mumbling that goes on in my head as I'm writing, and it's mostly that, where my, it's, there's a feel of reading a thing aloud. I can feel oftentimes my lips moving when I'm writing um, with no sound coming out. 
And that's what I mean by that kind of internal mumbling that's going on as I'm writing. I'm not sure if you do that or other writers do, but I know that that's that I'm aware of that happening to me. It's interesting because if you, like, I feel like my, my career has been heavily influenced by music. And like you said, you hear, you hear beats in your head and it's supposed to did it, did it, pop or but um but um but um pop. And if I grew up listening to Tupac and you grew up listening to Hank Williams Jr., the rhythms are going to sound different, and what you read is going to make the rhythm sound different. So maybe, wouldn't it, wouldn't it follow then, I would read what you're writing and think, no, that rhythm is off, and you would read what I'm writing and think, that rhythm is off, if we're writing to completely different rhythms. Yeah, very much so. That's why certain kinds of writing I don't like, even though others may like it. it uh, it's not the content of what occurs in the story, it's not sentence structure, is it? It has to do with the rhythms to which that sound to us in some way or another beautiful and others which sound without harmony and without, without the kind of uh, uh, variance that music has. It's, it's, you don't get 15 notes in a row, all the same, followed by 15 more, still the same, followed by 15 more. Music varies, and it's that pattern of variance that, for me, makes graceful, beautiful uh, writing, whether it's poetry or nonfiction or fiction. Uh, and I guess I guess it has to do with, essentially, for me, with the, the variance of emphasis and words. Uh, I, I wouldn't, for example, write seven really complex sentences one after the other which it would feel academic and scholarly to me and wouldn't have the sound that I the sound of the world which for me is a world that varies its music as it comes at you I recently was told that I need to read Absalom Absalom by William Faulkner and that it's the the best book ever written and it's the greatest thing ever written mm-hmm. and it will change my life and it's uh it's 384 pages and I made it I made it about 24 pages in and I was like I'm just not here I am not hearing this and I'm not feeling this I was wondering do you have a lot of Faulkner experience and is there a such thing as the great as the greatest book ever written well to my knowledge I know I don't know of the greatest book ever written maybe it's been written and I just haven't encountered <laughs> it yet right but it hasn't it hasn't come my way my son for example is also a junior in high school and he's reading right now and for English, The Great Gatsby, which has been touted as the great American novel. And although I like it a lot, I would never call it the greatest American novel because there are so many other great novels, Absalom, Absalom. So, so I liked it. I wouldn't say I was in love with it, but I liked it. I like Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates, a different kind of writer. Um, clear, lucid sentences. Uh uh, there are so many other writers who've written books that are so different in tone that I think, in part, all of us are, are are bringing that thing you just talked about, the music we listen to, but also the sound of our father's voice at a dinner table, and the, 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 the sound that we all have inside our heads as we talk to ourselves late at night. Uh, you know, as we go to bed, it's been a tough day, and you're yapping to yourself. That sound... And all those sounds that are around us, we all bring these individual uh, audio devices that are that are in, inside of us. And I think they, fl- I think they're fluid, 
they change over time. Mine certainly has. And I'll often return to a book that I was indifferent about earlier on and find myself being much more receptive to it uh, and to the sound of it. Faulkner is a good example of that. I remember reading him for the first time in er my early college years, maybe sophomore, maybe a freshman even, I can't remember. It was The Sound and the Fury. And uh, it seemed to me a, a, a toneless book uh, that, 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 that without that variance I was talking about, it felt, the whole book felt toneless to me. And it was partly his choice of stream of consciousness and the Benji stuff, but it was not just Benji. It, it seemed throughout the book that way. Now I reread it and I can hear what I couldn't hear back in my college years. My audio device inside my head has, has changed over the years. In your, in your new book, uh, Dad's Maybe Book, you wrote uh, on page 24, it, it's such a random passage from book, but you wrote about attending the, the Sewanee Writers Conference in the mountains of Tennessee, where I'd been tasked with providing advice <laughs> to people who sought to become better writers. Most often yeah. in set circumstances, I can think of almost nothing to say. Read widely, toughen up your psyche, ra uh, ration the booze, and don't forget to write a little. I want to be helpful, of course, but I don't know how. I feel like an imposter. And I wonder, right. I'm sure you've been asked a million times by now, speak at this event, talk to writers. I know you teach, you teach at Texas State University, San Marcos. Is it a thing? Can you teach someone how to write? Maybe you can. I can't, no. I can teach things like grammar and the importance of grammar and why it matters. I can talk about pronouns for hours on end and how if you run across the word it and you don't know what the it refers to, it can be a problem for a reader. I was shocked when I saw it and you don't know what the it refers to. Um, so little bitty things I can teach. They're, they're important for writing postcards and letters, but it, to teach the sound of, of graceful, original prose is, uh, I think is not, not possible. I think it's taught through a lot of reading and for, and, and to, taught by a lot of listening through your life, but not by a, by a formal teacher. So I teach at a small college out here in California, and um, I always say the number one skill I think that reporters and, and writers need to have is a willingness to listen a million times more than you, than you talk, and to not feel the need to interrupt someone, and to truly absorb what they're saying, and to respond to what they're saying, not just to have a list of questions, but to respond to what's coming out of their mouth. What have been the skills that you feel have sort of allowed you to sustain a very long and impressive career in writing? Well, I named the most important already stubbornness. I'm a tenacious <laughs> kind of person, and I just sit there and, and gouge away at a sentence until it, it seems to me something that's new to the world and that I haven't done before, and you hope others haven't. I am, though, shocked oftentimes at things that I think I've invented or discovered, and then two weeks later, I'll read a novel and <laughs> discover somebody had discovered it, you know, 40 years ago. This happened fairly recently. I can't remember the book I was reading, but I had written in Dad's Maybe book about the word chaos and how as a young uh, middle schooler, I was assigned to, to give a speech before the local PTA, 
the parent teachers organization. And my assignment was to talk about revolution in Angola back in the 1960s. And so I dutifully researched it. I went to U.S. News and World Report and Time magazine and read a lot about Angola and encountered the word chaos, which I thought was pronounced chaos. <laughs> and so I spent a half an hour talking about chaos here and chaos there, chaos all over Africa, how our military was, you know, infected by chaos. And uh, it was just and I could see my dad squirming out in the audience. I could see his face wrinkling up and kind of moving in his chair. And, and I could hear the little titters going around the audience. And I remember thinking, what, why do they think this, this chouse is funny? This is serious stuff. And I went back to my seat, and my dad leaned over, and he said, chaos, not chouse. <laughs> And my humiliation was, the mortification lasts to this day. I mean, this is one of those childhood things that I have not forgotten and never will. I can't say it revisits me in my dreams. It revisits me when I'm wide awake. And uh, I, thought I, I thought I was the sole human being who had made this mistake publicly. And then after writing that section of the new book, describing my anguish and mortification, a couple of weeks later, I was reading a novel in which a character in the novel was confessing to another character exactly the same mistake. And uh, there, go, there goes inventiveness and originality down the chute. So what, what I thought I had invented, not invented, but invented in terms of delivering to the world, had been delivered 40 years earlier exactly the same by another writer. You've been living a lie. You, you've been living a lie. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Some scholar is going to dig up whatever that book was and chastise me for it. Exactly. exactly. That's funny. Um, you, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by something. I, I feel like Dad's Maybe book, you know, on the surface, obviously, it's, it's, it's sort of about you and your kids and being an older dad and uh, charting sort of their lives along with your lives as they grow up. Um, but I really, it hit me. So I'm 48, uh, almost 48, and I have, I have two kids. And... It really just hit me as this sort of um, look at aging through a certain prism. And I was thinking about it. Like, you're 73 years old. I cover a lot of – my life has been devoted to covering athletes mainly. And, you know, athletes fade and they lose their skills and, and they're not what they were. And it's a very sad sort of plight to see an athlete at 25 become an athlete at 38, 39, 40. And I wonder as a writer, has aging changed your abilities – has it changed your approach to writing? Has it made you a better or worse? What has it done to you as a writer? Um, I'm not quite sure of the answer to the question. I don't think it's a question of, of the sentences. The sentences I can still do well, mainly because of I just am so tenacious about it. It's the it's the uh, desire that begins to fade for me. When you look at how long it takes for me, at least, to write a novel, it's in a commitment of seven years or five years, but never fewer than four years. And proportionally to the time left to me, that's a pretty huge commitment to something that may or may not be successful. 
even for me, may not be successful. And what what is what is uh, important to me is no longer uh, only literary stuff. It's my children, my wife, uh, reading other people's books, that sort of thing, and the time still given to me. So I don't think I've lost or gained anything through age alone. I think I've beyond desire. Uh, the knowledge that I'll be facing nine hours or eight or six or now maybe five, that's a, a, a day after day after day after day after day after day. And so it's desire mostly, I, I think, that has begun to fade. I can't tell. I actually can't fully tell in reading this if you're, and I'm fascinated by it because I wrestle with this all the time. If you're relatively comfortable with your mortality and having kids makes you more comfortable with that, or if you're, because kids can be a real mind fuck, um, or if you're, if it makes you less comfortable because you know at some point you won't be there for them, or it makes you more comfortable because you know your, your whatever will carry on through your kids. Well, I hope it were otherwise, and I wish it were otherwise, but I'm a, at least a realist, and I know what is going to be delivered to me. It's hard to believe, uh, even at age 73, that there is life is finite. It, on a day-by-day basis, I don't think about it much, but every few days I do. Um, I'm a smoker, and I think about that. I think about it when I go in for my annual exam and what the hell is going to happen to me and what's going to be found. Uh, But it feels a lot like it felt back when I was 12 years old, that you know intellectually there's going to be an end, but somehow you manage to behave and live your life as if there were no end. It, It maybe we could describe that as the ostrich syndrome where you put your head in the sand, not wanting to look at uh, reality, but it doesn't feel ostrich like it, it, it feels forgetful and not intentional. You forget you're going to die and you forget that the end is much closer. It's forgotten. It's just not forgotten for months at a time as it used to have been or years at a time. It, it's, it's still forgotten. I didn't think about it until you asked the question, for example, during our conversation. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm actually going to take a break this week from Hawking Product to encourage people who can to donate to the First Responders Children Foundation, which supports the children and families of first responders through college scholarships and special grants. If you go to 1stecf.org, you can donate directly to the COVID-19 emergency response. It's a really wonderful cause. Thank you. My favorite uh, passage in your book was page 22, which I'll just, it's very short. It's its just a very, it's a one paragraph chapter, I guess you would call it a chapter called Skin. And you wrote, Timmy is an infant. He is on my lap. My nose is pressed to the top of his head. My eyes are closed. I'm smelling his skin. And the smell of skin, a baby's skin, becomes, in the instant of smelling, 
the one and only thing in the universe. Nothing else exists. There's no yesterday and no tomorrow, only the smell of skin. No murder, no turpitude, no unhappy endings, only the smell of skin. For everything else is everywhere, and the smell of an infant's skin is a smell of light obliterating darkness. Just love it. That's what I mean. I mean, I couldn't write any better when I was 40 or 30 or 20. That's what I meant by I, I, I... I don't think I've lost the powers of it, of, of prose, that what it took to do those, it took you, what, 15, 20 seconds to read it, consumed, I don't know, three weeks of my life. That thing was much longer, three, four pages. It was really long. And I knew it was unsatisfactory, uh, partly because it was too long and didn't need to be that long. And not, uh, one way of describing it is it was wordy and too many words uh, to express a thing that could be said in a single sentence or a couple of sentences. It, it, and I think that is maybe an advantage of getting older, that you, I don't treat my work as, as uh, in any way given to me by the gods. <laughs> it, it can be made better. I didn't have the kind of patience to subtract that dramatically when I was younger. I did subtract, I did delete, but not to the extent I do now. You write skin, and you write it over a couple weeks, and it's three pages. And then mm -hmm. at some point, you're just like, no, this doesn't, this is, this is, this sucks. This needs to be much shorter. And then you just, do you just literally print it out, take a pen, delete? Do you do it on your laptop? Like, how no, do you I just put it, I just threw it away and started brand. I started freshly. Wow, I I couldn't I I didn't I'm not a guy who goes through with a pencil crossing things out and trying to make sentences connect and so on. I knew it had to be said in a breath, kind of the way you read it just now. It had to be spoken and then written that way, and just to sort of stitch together sentences out of a longer you know three page thing would have been too laborious and unsuccessful. I just, I tossed it. I remembered some of the nice phrases. I had the word obliterating in, maybe on page, maybe at the bottom of page one early on. Now it's at the very conclusion of it. And that word stuck with me. Um, and it wasn't used in the same context originally. It wasn't light obliterating darkness. It was used in a wholly different context. But it sounds better and is better <laughs> when it, when it uh, came out in the breath. I just really like, I'm a fan of, I'm, I'm a real, I'm a huge nerd with this stuff. And I like, um, Timmy is an infant, period. He's on my lap, mm -hmm. period. My nose is pressed to the top of his head, period. My eyes period. are closed, period. I'm smelling his skin, period. I love how, I mean, someone once said to me a long time ago, you take everything you learned in writing class and then you forget 90% of it. Or you you willingly ignore 90% of it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, my 12th grade English teacher, Mr. Height, in Mayo Pack High School, is going to say, no, you you can't have sentences that short. You can't blah, 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 blah. And I just, mm -hmm. I don't know, do you, are, you, are you writing it and thinking, are you even consciously thinking these need to be short sentences, there's a reason they're going to be short, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for short, then hit you with the long? Or is it just a natural sort of thing that pops in your head? It's natural. Yeah. I mean, it's natural when you're writing well. It's totally the opposite when you're writing poorly. They, even the way you said it just now, that there are these 
these short little sentences, but I wasn't, I didn't, the word short didn't come into my head as I was writing it. What was in my head was rhythm. It was brevity. I wanted brevity as opposed to what I did have, which was the absence of brevity. I had verbosity and we wanted the opposite. And when you, when this, when it's read aloud or when it's read to oneself, the, the period doesn't command you the way it does. I think for a lot of writers, it doesn't feel like you've, you've, you've inserted just a period and that there's a you know, seven-second break after the period. It feels the way you would read it aloud on the, on the podcast just now. It feels like a breathless statement. Um, so, but what's on, what's on, I'm sure your mind, what you're writing on my mind and any good writer's mind is, is rhythm. It's a sense of rhythmic, uh, and this is the rhythm of a, somebody sprinting or so it felt to me when I was writing it and not a long distance, you know, right. uh, runner. Right, because you wrote saying it's. I was. I was literally as you were saying that. I was looking at the next page, and you have a sentence where you say, "Timmy's first fifteen months mostly evaporated for me." Okay, period. And then your next sentence is, "What I have in my head, comma, when I have anything at all, comma, is a jumble of <laughs> diapers and bottles and strollers and car seats and two or three near-death experiences." Which is, I mean, it's really cool. Like you're talking about a jumble of things in a jumbled sentence. And even though I'm sure you didn't mm -hmm. do it deliberate, like you didn't consciously think, okay, this sentence needs to be jumbled. Right. It's almost like a natural instinct. I just love that. I could talk about that all day. That sentence alone yeah. is great. Yeah, I can remember slaving on that sentence and how many various versions there were to get into that next chapter. And to present the chaos of a mind that's, all over the place with memories swimming through one's head as often happens to me. And I'm sure to all of us to try to represent that, um, in a way that feels that way without falling into the trap of, you know, this fallacy where you're, I'm going to be chaotic in order to sound chaotic. You, so the sentences themselves aren't chaotic, but I think they give the feel of chaos without themselves being chaotic. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I've been on this kick lately, uh, writing-wise, where people often say, I'm sure you hear this a lot, oh, you, you write so conversationally. And like that is a conversational passage that you wrote there. It's a very conversational passage. Um, it is. But the weird thing about it, Tim, is you wouldn't say it that way. Like if we were having a conversation and you said to me, um, what were the first 15 months like? You wouldn't literally say, oh, it's a jumble of, right. of diapers. It's like conversational right. writing isn't conversational. It just needs to sound like it's conversational, which is kind of Absolutely a weird thing. Right. I have no idea how you get that though. Like I can, I feel like I can do it. Okay. But I, I have no idea how you teach that or show someone how to write conversational with the illusion. It's conversational, but it's actually not conversational. Yeah. All you can do is sort of respond negatively to, to passages where they're attempting to sound conversational, but are not succeeding. Right. And oftentimes you can find little things that are done in, in the effort to be sort of make things something, say something pretentiously when in conversation you would not. And I can, I can hear the interjection in a sentence that interrupts the conversational tone of it, a word choice, a way of phrasing something that loses a conversational tone. 
for me, it's a case-by-case thing when I read the work of, of my students where I, I can sometimes see where what they're trying to do, which is trying to sound conversational, and I can see what's stopping the, the sentence or the paragraph from actually sounding the way they wish it would sound. They're doing two things simultaneously. They're trying to rev it up. Right. And you can feel you can hear the revving up thing happening. You can see it physically on the page. They'll insert a simile where in conversation there would be no simile. Um, it, it's making something sound a little more literary to there, maybe so that you know the Paris Review will take it. Um, but it, it works against the conversational tone. Actually, you would love this. My um, so my son had his bar mitzvah last week, and my wife wrote a speech that she was going to give at the bar mitzvah, and she asked me to read it. And she used, um, at one point she said something like, Emmett, well, Emmett, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, nobody says well when they're actually talking. Like nobody, and the other one is after all. Jim, after all. Like, right. Nobody says say that, that ever. Right. Yeah. Good, good eye and good ear. <laughs> it's just funny. Nobody uses that stuff. But it's the most, con- yeah. to me, well and after all are the two most overused conversational techniques that are actually not conversational in the history of writing. They're not, con- they're not conversational. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's very funny. Um, I want to ask you, I, I read something you said. This is, a, this is from a 94 article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And you said, um, you said, you cannot write fiction anymore because it hurts too much. I did? Yeah. That, that was a quote from you. Is that you were, you were preparing to tell the world that at age 48, you could not write fiction anymore because it hurts too much. <laughs> What, what what year was it published again? I, you, I think I know it. It was nineteen ninety four. It's a Philadelphia Inquirer piece. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it did the back then. I was going through a terrible time in my life. I was right. I had written in the Lake of the Woods, which is a very grim, uh, almost macabre book. And uh, events in my life were intersecting with the book at that time, and so it. Although the novel had not started out to be in the least personal, it became my. It, it, it felt like I was had written myself into the very troubles that I later encountered, and then tried to in the latter part of the book tried to dig myself out from under this uh, this intersection of of a novel with the life I was leading. The story it's a story about a man whose wife vanishes and an important person in my life a girlfriend vanished not literally but out of my life and the intersection was bizarre and horrifying and um, uh, depressing in the extreme more than depression it was just anguish and yet I felt I had to, after committing myself to this book for so long, so many years, that I felt I had to finish it. And it was torture that I felt I was now bearing my private life in a way I'd never done it before in the pages of a novel. It was, it was horrible and uh, made me want to quit. Do you ever think like I should have just become an accountant? Often. <laughs> or like a, the guy in the bowling alley who sets the pins or something akin to that, where you, the damn pins are set and they're standing up straight and my job's over. <laughs> and 
writing just is not that way. I wish it were. Yeah. I always say to my wife, I just want to be a barista. I think I'd be really happy. I think I'd be so happy as a barista, you know. Okay, or a plumber. Yeah, or a plumber. Um, let me ask you a final question because I'm fascinated by this. I read this again in that same Philadelphia Inquirer story, and it just struck me as so weird that I wanted to ask. You wrote about, um, <laughs> you got a letter 14 years ago, so that would have been 1980, from a woman who nearly married a Tim O'Brien impersonator. She called off the wedding only after seeing the real Tim O'Brien for uh, O'Brien's photograph on the back of one of his novels and realizing her husband to be was a, was a was a fraud. Is that uh, I don't even know what to ask. It's true. What, what's the story? Yeah, it's well. You basically told the story. <laughs> I received a letter in the mail from the, this woman saying I've been meaning to write you for a long, long time, and now I have to. And she told the story you just told. She'd met a guy in a bar and he bought her a drink she had asked his name and he said his name was roger something or other and then he said that i am a writer and i write under the pen name of tim o'brien <laughs> and they they started dating and uh got engaged to be married and began living together prior to getting married I'm on page 20 of her letter now. I've skipped a lot of detail, all of which is completely fascinating. But while they were living together, they would lie in bed at night, and she'd be reading his books, and she, my, my books, and lean over and ask a question about something, and he'd give an explanation, oh, that means such and such. And she accepted it. At one point, she did get suspicious, uh, and said to him something like, you know, the, nothing literary ever comes through the, through the house and no royalty statements or letters from publishers, blah, blah, blah. He said, yeah, yeah, all that goes to the office. He, 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 was, he was an insurance salesman. Uh, he, he said on the side, I think that's all he was really. And they said, yeah, it all comes to the office. Don't worry about it. She accepted that. But one day, she, he was feeding her books that back then the, the paperbacks of my books had no photograph on them. Uh -huh. And he was feeding her those books. But one day, <laughs> she was looking for another book, and she finished the line and went to the library, found a hardcover, and saw the photograph. And she hauled it home and put it on the dining table. And when he came in uh, from work that day, she said, uh, I've got something to show you. And he, she turned the book over and there was my picture, not his. And he said, yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to confess this for a long time. It's been just eating at me ever since we got engaged. <laughs> and he said, two of us write these books. Oh my God. And that's the other guy's picture. And she believed him. Oh my God. She, in her letter, she said, I just, it didn't occur to me to be lying about something so enormous that he'd marry somebody. And a couple of weeks later, the wedding was very close now, like a week away or two weeks away. Uh, he did confess. He said, I got, I just can't live with this of, of uh, marrying you and, and pretending this. And then he told her what had happened. He said, look, I was in this bar met you, thought you were beautiful. And I knew that you were never going to go out with an insurance guy who's fat. Apparently he was a fat guy and way overweight. 
And so I sat there thinking I'd never see you again. I think I'd buy you a drink and that'd be the end of it. But you wanted to see me. And so we started dating and we fell in love. And I was trapped. I, and something in his letter felt so human to me that it, 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 it didn't, it didn't, it began as a lie. There's no question about that, but it felt like a human lie. At least for a few minutes, this woman will pay attention to me in this bar and uh, ask me questions and be interested in me. And she uh, enclosed a letter he had written to her after, after he had confessed, explaining all this stuff. And his letter made me tear up. It was really a beautiful letter. So the story, in a way, angered me at first. But when I read his letter, the anger, it didn't all go away. Some stayed, but a portion of it did vanish for me, and I felt some sympathy for him. On the other hand, I visited that city, Mm Winston-Salem, two or three times since, and always wondered, you know, out in the audience, that guy was out there or she was out there and wishing one of them would like approach me and say, I want to to talk to you for a minute. It never happened, but maybe someday I'll get a letter or run into that person. I really wish I would. I've lost all animosity now. I think you're, um, I think you're not thinking big picture here. I'm seeing a, uh, a Lifetime Network reality TV show, The Two Tim O'Briens. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it was copped off one, doesn't it? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let me ask you one more thing. I'm just curious. Do you enjoy promoting books? Like, do you enjoy... No. Not at all. No, I hate it. Why? I find it, I find it humiliating, really, to paraphrase your own book in a little 15-minute talk with somebody or... Uh, the books, the quality of books is is determined by what's inside the book and the sentences. And you can't say, oh, boy, this book is full of beautiful sentences. I can't wait to have you all buy it and read it. It sounds ridiculous. So, no, I really, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's humiliating and a little bit demeaning to go around asking people to buy your book. That's that used to be the job of publishers. Yeah. They'd sell the books. That's over. And these days publishers don't do a lot. The ad budgets you know have shrunken to almost non existent and and now it's it's they're counting on authors to, you know, spend their lives going around giving talks and readings to sell books, which really is their province and ought to be theirs. So no, I, I really, really hate it. I just want to say my favorite moment in book history is I have a friend, uh, an author named John Wertheim, and he was he wrote a book about uh, Indiana basketball, and he went on a book tour in Indiana, and they sent him to a bookstore, and he showed up at the bookstore. The bookstore wasn't there; it had closed, and he <laughs> he called he called the PR guy at the publishing house, and he said, "I'm really surprised. They've always been good to us." And that was it. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's the ultimate story. I thought you were going to say there was one person sitting there, but there wasn't even a bookstore. Oh my god! You've had the one person. I know you're obviously you've you've had a lot of fame, and you've had. Please tell me you've had the signings with the one or two people. Back in the old days, yeah. yeah. I mean, 
yeah, maybe 40 years ago, I remember I went to Hawaii, maybe longer ago than that, long time ago, maybe for my first book. And I and, uh, went to the big island and up on a volcano there, famous volcano, there's a little shack. It has a fireplace in it. It's it's the size of my office now. I mean, I don't know, 10 feet by 10 feet. Totally empty. Me and the guy that drove me there. So, yeah, that has happened. I was relieved there was nobody there because if one person had been there, what a nightmare. Right. I agree. But as it turned out, I didn't have to do anything. I could just go home. Yeah, exactly. You got a trip to Hawaii and you go home. It's good. End of story. <laughs> um well, Tim, listen, I I, uh, I really truly appreciate you taking the time to do this, and I'm a oh, I had a great time. I'm a huge admirer great of your time, work. Jeff. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Tim O'Brien, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>